Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast about immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So today is a special episode where my guest is also my co-host. Her name is Sandy Chang, and she's the host of the Now in Color podcast. It's also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So we're essentially doing each other's shows. And as you listen, you'll see the format jump a bit, which was a pretty fun experiment. I love the premise of Now in Color because it's a historical podcast about forgotten figures in history, and I had the pleasure of being her guest not too long ago. Um, The episode is still available on iTunes, so it was really fun for her to come and do mine in return. And since we're sharing formats, today Sandy talks about Joseph Pierce, who was a Chinese-American soldier who served during the American Civil War. Also, as we're recording this, we're celebrating Veterans Day in America, and we thought that Joseph's story was a great jumping-off point. And Sandy shares a very personal experience about her own brother in the military, and it was really touching. And since it's also my podcast, we talk about Sandy's Chinese and Taiwanese upbringing, how she personally identifies, and we touch on the affirmative action lawsuit at Harvard. Also, we talk about Ken Jong and Aquafina because why not? And before we get started, I want to thank my sponsor, Des Jin. Des Gin is an American modern gin with a mission to unite design with the spirit industry. Designed both inside and out, it merges the traditional and the unconventional. Alright, so here we go. A special collaboration episode of First Generation Burn and Now in Color with myself, Rich Tu and Sandy Cheng. So tell me a little bit about Chinese school. What, what, how was that different other than you know being culturally specific? Yeah, so I went to Chinese school up until like senior year of high school. And then I took Chinese classes in college too. Okay. Um, But basically you learn to read and write Chinese. You hang out with other Chinese American kids. Okay. Um, And that's basically it. I mean, it sucked. I hated it while I was there because I was like, I just want to sleep in because I'm not a morning person. But yeah, every Saturday I was forced to wake up at 7 a.m. and go to Chinese school and do the whole thing. A few of my white friends would come with me sometimes because they were so fascinated by it. They're like, what is Chinese school? It sounds fascinating. So they would like come and sit with me as Chinese school happened. How big are those classes? Is Um, it like a Sunday school situation? It's almost like Sunday school, but Chinese. Um, I think it was like. 10 or 12 people this is where we talked about that boy i had a crush on he was in my school and then he cheated off of me oh really yeah and i was like i studied so hard for this fucking test you're not gonna copy off of me (laughs) yeah so so do you learn uh, like general education at chinese school is it is it additive or is it no you just learn chinese um you learn to read and write uh, you learn like um, you learn Mandarin and Cantonese. Just Mandarin. Just Mandarin. Um, at least at my Chinese school, it's just Mandarin. And you learn like because Chinese people kind of speak in proverbs, okay. so you learn a lot of those proverbs. Um, yeah, and you just learn to read and write, and you just take tests all the time. And wow. that's basically it. <laughs> well, yeah. first, of, well, first of all, yes. Uh, on that topic, um, Sandy Chang, it was such a pleasure to have you yes, here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, you are uh, the host of another great podcast, which I've had the pleasure of being on before, yes. Now in Color. Yeah. Um, for listeners who don't know, Now in Color is a history podcast for those who have been erased from history, and we bring them back to the forefront. And then we talk about other things, too, like intergenerational trauma, which is a huge topic. Right. Yeah. 
And now we're doing a bit of a podcast collab. Yes. Which is um, really cool. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your podcast for my listeners. Oh, sure. Yeah. So my podcast is called First Generation Burden, and it's a podcast about conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I started a few years ago, uh, right after Trump was elected, actually, uh, in order to just have a some sort of response, at least from a personal level, of what felt like negative uh, immigrant-based rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to talk to a lot of my friends and people I know and people that I was uh, kind of fascinated by within within my circle uh, in order to just communicate their stories as well as understand more about people that are living their dream and their truth in this country. Uh, when the country is essentially not loving them back and giving them the truth that they probably deserve. So that's kind of where that started. And then it just turned into a, uh, a bit of a a content bear (laughs) (laughs) that I have to, that I'm constantly thinking about and dealing with. (laughs) Same, same. We actually talked about this right when I walked in. I was just like, I think I'm getting burnt out by my own (laughs) podcast that I, I love it dearly, but like the editing process and just like thinking about it all the time and being like, the brutality was, of the editing yes, process. Was this like enough history? Was the storytelling okay? Sure. Like, and did someone say something that they shouldn't have said? And I have to like check in with them. And it's like a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. The self-editing too, during yeah. the course of it. Self-editing. Yeah, I did a lot of that too in the beginning. And now I'm just like, I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It's not kind of good to just not care because then you'll, you'll start being a self-watchdog in the beginning. Yeah. And then you won't. On, on the back end, it's just way less work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What day do you drop your podcast? Mondays. Mondays. Um, but I didn't do one last week, and I feel really guilty about Ooh. it. And now I'm Guilt like, is good. I, have to, I have to do it. I've been thinking about it all last week. I was just like, maybe I should have, because maybe my listeners are disappointed. But like, no one has reached out to me, and I don't sure. think anyone really cares. I think it's yeah. a comfort thing. Yeah. People just like regularity. They like schedule. Yes, they do. And I know that we were talking earlier before we turned the mics on. I was talking about how I did uh, six episodes per week, tried to do six and six and six. And then now I'm a little bit off schedule in order to just be able to maintain my life. And, you know, the for me, the seasonal schedule is uh, more of a, like an exercise. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm trying something else and just trying to be a little bit more loose format. I don't know if people are responding to that or people are digging it, but that's just my personal yeah. vibe right now. I also have to remind listeners I'm not getting paid for it. So yeah, totally. <laughs> I have a life outside of this beautiful podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I were getting paid for it. I would yeah. do this forever. Yeah. Well, um, before we jump into your format oh yeah yeah um, oh yes there's gonna be two formats two formats two competing formats yeah to get some preliminaries out of the way i just love to hear a little bit about where you came from and uh your Mm. your your origins and then we can jump into our topic of the day okay wow so i am from riverside california um i was born in monterey park california um what else did i do with my life i don't I don't even know. I feel like, so my parents are Taiwanese, but they also say they're Chinese. And that's been really confusing for me, especially in the last two years, I feel like, because, you know, with doing this history podcast and learning a lot about history and learning a lot about intergenerational trauma and colonialism, 
I also have to grapple with the fact that like um, China was also a colonial power at some point to Taiwan. So that's been like a very confusing thing of like being, am I Taiwanese American or Chinese American? But because all my life growing up, I've been like, oh, I'm Chinese American. But I do feel culturally more connected to Taiwan. Sure. But when I tell that to my parents, they're like, no, we're Chinese. So it's very, very confusing, even though they were born and raised in Taiwan. But they still believe that Taiwan is the real China. You know? What does that mean? Taiwan is the real China. Because when Chiang Kai-shek, sorry, this is getting into history already, but when Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan to escape the communists, basically he also overtook Taiwan and killed like thousands upon thousands of people um, and became like a dictator in his own right. Sure. But growing up, um, a lot of us, a lot of like nationalist Chinese people we're thinking like, oh, he was like the best president. He was like basically Obama okay. to us. Um, but then I read this book about how he like tortured and killed all these Taiwan, like indigenous Taiwanese people and basically was like, this is the new China now because he also took a lot of like architecture and art from the real China, quote unquote. So that's where my parents are coming from. So yeah, it's just been really confusing in the past two years of like, am I Taiwanese American or Chinese American? Or maybe I'm just both. Who knows? Sure. Yeah. Um, but Your yeah. parents wrestle with those issues as well, or is this primarily you? It's just primarily me. And like when I talk to my parents about it, they're just like, uh, no, you're Chinese. But to me, I feel like I'm more Taiwanese and they're more Taiwanese than Chinese. Um, How long have your parents been in the States for? Uh, 35 years. Wow. Yeah. And I've always lived in Riverside, California. And then after that, I went to school in New York, in upstate New York. And then I just stayed here. And then that's pretty much it. Yeah. Wow. I don't know much about my life. My life's pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound that boring to me. Yeah. <laughs> but you're acting now. Yeah. Now I'm acting. I went to an acting school. I just finished in June. Um, had a bit of a depression session. I was like, what's happening? Sure. Art is really hard. <laughs> I know we <laughs> talked a, a little bit about this on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. And then I created a podcast out of that depression session and then I had my very first acting, like paid acting gig yesterday. Um, I woke up in the morning and then my friend was like, my actor dropped out. So come and act. So like I got the script literally an hour before shooting, did a, did my thing. And I was like, oh, that was actually really fun. I actually really enjoy acting. And it like reminded me of why I even went to acting school to right. begin with. Um, I played a therapist, which is my brand. I'm a therapist. <laughs> um, and that was pretty much it. I'm also producing a pilot right now. So that's like another thing that I'm doing. Um, yeah, that's the bigger lift, I think. Yes. And yeah, I just feel like I'm obsessed with creating content, but then I get burnt out by my own content. So sure. I just need to remember to to, you know, ask for support. I had like a production meeting yesterday and not be afraid to ask for support. And I think that's something that I'm learning in the year is just like, it's okay to collaborate with people. Yes. You don't have to like do things by yourself. You don't yeah. have to be a perfectionist about everything and control everything. So yeah, that's my life now. Wow, that's great. Yeah. What do you, what do you think is the, 
the biggest lesson that you've learned since you've left? Is it the collaborative element or is like uh, you, you talk about perfection? I, I, I find that surrounding yourself with people who are also um, better than you. Yes. <laughs> is is possibly the best way to go yeah and then keeping the trust circle very very tight yeah that and just like letting go of people who are very negative and cynical yeah um because i find i don't know if this is true for you but i find in new york or in just the creative space in general it's really easy to you know find people who are just like oh like i'm never gonna make it and like this isn't working out for me and like maybe i'm just like not meant to be an artist or be a creative and it's really easy to fall into that misery loves company sort right. of attitude um and i feel like even after school after in the in june i was like in that space of like oh maybe this is just isn't right for me yeah um so it's easy to find people like that too especially in a place like new york so um, I find that hanging out with people not only who are better than me, but also who are always hopeful and optimistic is really, really important to yeah, collaborate. I agree with that. Um, and also that really helps with letting go of perfection because people who tend to fall into this cynical space tend to be perfectionists and yeah. they're like, oh, it didn't meet some perfect standard that they put in their heads. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It feels like lack of imperfection or lack of perfection, essentially imperfection, is really just character. Yeah. And individualism. Yeah. That's where yeah. I've landed with that. Yeah. Kind of me wrestling with uh, what I always felt was uh, the need to be better in general. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's like a huge immigrant thing as yeah. well, because we're always taught that we have to be, what is that? work twice as hard to get half of half of what yeah they the white people get <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 for sure yeah. we are the other yeah from the other mentality yeah yeah so i think i like i think perfectionism served me for a long time until it stopped serving me and now i'm like learning to let that go sure. and being okay with not being seen as perfect or you know, just being seen as like a human because all humans are flawed and like I'm not perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? What? Oh, so. Today, or is that your line? <laughs> who are we bringing into the room today? Yeah, there you go. Yes. Um, this is my first time like, because I'm usually making someone else do the research. <laughs> so now it's my turn. I'm going to take a sip of water. Tables are turned. Yeah, so the pressure is on. Now I know why people are so nervous, because I'm like, oh, did I do enough research? I think I did. Well, I did bring in Wikipedia printouts into mine. (laughs) Yeah, I printed out some things that I've written down. So today we're going to be talking in honor of Veterans Day. Yes, it is Veterans Day. Um, we're going to be talking about the Civil War and the Chinese-American Civil War soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. So that's my topic today. And specifically, I'm going to be focusing on a soldier named Joseph Pierce. Is that ready? Yeah. So for those who don't know about the Civil War, <laughs> we're going to have some background. So the Civil War was fought between 1861 to 1865. And the narrative is that it was largely over slavery, which I think is true. Um, So the Union had outlawed slavery and told the Southerners, like, all right, it's time to give up slavery. Like, stop. But the South was like, um, no, (laughs) I don't want to. 
this is our property. And if you don't agree, we're going to secede and form our own country. And slaves are going to be legal forever in our new country. And the union was like, um, fuck that. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Long story short, war break, breaks out. So a lot of people now in the South still believe and these are people who like wear the confederate flag as a shirt or like have that hanging around so they still argue to the say that oh it's not about slavery it was about like taxes and property but then again your property at that time were human beings they were slaves so it was about all of that and to be fair i also want to point out that lincoln himself wasn't morally opposed to slavery either and also did not think that at the time black lives were equal to white lives um and what we know about the emancipation he was a republican he was a republican so we have to remember that a different type of republican yes he was different a different type definition at the time and like i feel like we put him on this pedestal but at the time he has said things that like he doesn't believe in the freedom of slaves um and the war only broke out really because he wanted to keep the union and it was like politically convenient for him to then release the emancipation proclamation um so we shouldn't hold him up to that pedestal just as a background but that's not what we're talking about today so there's a war <laughs> War is happening. Yes. Um, there's and a civil war. There's it's a pretty civil big, war. <laughs> pretty big situation happening. That's happening. Not everyone's super stoked on it. Yeah. The North and the South are fighting. And then the Emancipation Proclamation comes out where black soldiers are recruited to fight in the Union for the promise of full citizenship. Um, and that's another thing that we have to remember is during a war, you should never listen to what the government tells you because it's going to be a lie for their convenience. So what we know in our history classes is, oh, so black soldiers were fighting. About 170,000 black soldiers were fighting along with white soldiers. But what we don't know is that Chinese American soldiers were also fighting in the Civil War, which I didn't know. Yeah, this is know. fascinating. <laughs> when you told me this is the topic, I was, I was yeah. like, whoa, let's yeah. talk about it. Um, and how I found out about it was actually through Instagram. And I thought it was like one of those like uh, Photoshop things. I was just like, oh, there's no way that there's this Chinese guy fighting in the Civil War. But then I researched it and I was like, oh, there are actually Chinese people fighting in the Civil War. Um, because like what we know about Chinese people is that they came over for the gold rush. And that was basically it. And then... Like from 1848 to 1855, Chinese Americans were ostracized, lynched, and pretty much treated badly. Um, we worked on railroads as slaves almost. Um, and that's kind of the narrative that we see depicted in movies, depicted in our history classes. So my question is, why would Chinese Americans even fight in the Civil War? Right. Why would they... What's their connection? Yeah, exactly. Or their um, investment. Yeah. Um, so that was like my main question going into this because there were only 200 Chinese Americans living in the United, not the United, but in the States at the time. But 58 of those 200 served in the Civil War. Um, and five of them fought for the Confederacy. Oh, wow. Um, this is how little... Chinese Americans there were that we know the exact numbers. Um, two of them were Christopher and Stephen Bunker, which are the 
bunker twins that I talk about a lot in my podcast. The, okay. The conjoined twins. I don't want to call them Siamese twins, but the conjoined twins. Sure. And that's why they're called Siamese twins because they're from the country of Siam. And the reason they fought in the Civil War was because so their family owned slaves. they could be called Siamese twins. Yes, because technically they were from... <laughs> <laughs> So it's less problematic to call the Bunker Twins Siamese Twins. But any other set of conjoined twins, do not call them Siamese Twins. Do not call them Siamese Twins because they're not from Siam. Um, So I'm going to focus on Joseph Pierce, who was the original Instagram picture that caught my eye. Um, I even sent this photo to my dad and he was just like, oh, this is Photoshop. Chinese people did not exist (laughs) in America at the time. And I was like, right, they didn't. (laughs) But he did. And he actually rose to the ranks um, in the Civil War. So what do we know about Joseph Pierce? Um, Which was not his real name, but that was his chosen name when he was. So he was brought to the United States from Canton, China, when he was 10 years old um, by his adopted father named Amos Peck. And Peck was this Far East trader and captain from Connecticut. And you're probably wondering why, why, like, some white dude is adopting Chinese people before it was trendy. But (laughs) this little dude, poor little Joseph, was sold to Peck by his biological father. So his real dad was like, I don't want you anymore. And brutal. Sold it to this white guy, Amos Peck. So technically, he was his slave at first. But the records seem to show that Amos Peck was actually really, really nice to him, really chill. And he was probably an abolitionist because he was from the North. He was from Connecticut. Right. Um, and he actually decided to adopt him and raise him with his own kids, with oh, okay. his biological kids, good, which is good like so dude. great. Yeah, yeah. Because historical records show that Pierce, Joseph Pierce could read and write. So that means he went to school. He wasn't just like hanging around the house and being a little house slave. Sure. And he was like accepted as a member of the Pe- Peck family. He wasn't like his little short round. No. Going, <laughs> his little adventure partner. Yeah. That was the lesser than. Yeah. So he was actually just like part of the family, which is like really nice. That actually. is nice. Um, but despite all this and he like grew up American, it seems like he lived in Connecticut. He was still described as yellow and a Chinaman. So he was always made to feel like an outsider and not really accepted as an American, which is something I feel like me as an immigrant, I've definitely experienced. I don't know how you have felt growing up as an immigrant. I've definitely felt the other, the otherness. Well, uh, as a little bit of a sidebar, I remember, uh, I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I've talked about on this podcast before, but growing up in New Jersey, in my neighborhood, in this, in my um, suburb, essentially, uh, I, yeah, didn't really have Asian friends. I didn't really have another Asian friend until I was in high school, I think. Wow. Yeah, I, and I went to an elementary school that was primarily African American, mm-hmm. so it was only, it was only me and my sister, and there were no white kids in that school. I remember there was one classmate, Laura, in second grade who was white. Mm-hmm. And then um, there were a couple of multiracial students. But other than that, it was... Yeah, I definitely stood out in the class pictures. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, same way. I mean, Riverside now is pretty representative, I think. It's like now like the cool place to live. Gotcha. Um, 
because like I think the art scene is really blowing up there. But growing up at the time, it was largely, I mean, I went to a Christian school from my elementary school and it was like all white basically. And yeah, there weren't a lot of Asians growing up either. I don't think I had Asian friends also until high school, which is really weird to think about. It is weird to think about. Yeah, and I feel like even now I don't have a lot of Asian friends. Like, I try, and then I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) I try. I try to have Asian friends. But, yeah, I just feel like a lot of my friends tend to be not Asian. Like, I'm thinking about it, and that's like... Well, well, that's the... you know, at what point do you do you are you trying to make an overt effort to, to to you know have your friends be of a certain representation? You know, yeah. I, at some point, your friends are just your friends. Yeah, I mean that's true. I feel like I feel like that was a problem there because like all my the stereotype sure. is that Asians only hang out with other Asians. Sure. Um, and like I kind of resented that at first. So like I don't I don't know if like a part of me like subconsciously just didn't have Asian friends because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I hope not, but I don't know. In high school I hung out with a lot of Asian friends. Or oh, I had mm-hmm. I, I had a lot. All yeah. of a sudden it went from having none to having a ton. Yeah. You know? And then I remember thinking I remember thinking I I was being uh almost oversensitive to my Asianness at the time mm-hmm. where I just leaned in super hard yeah. and then I leaned away again. Yeah. And then I, and then I'm edging towards, I'm, I'm in the middle now where, you know, I have a, of a good diverse group of, of individuals that I, that I hold close, but now I'm, I, I, I'm again, embracing my, my, my background and, and holding it as a, as a something of strength, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, same. That's why I'm like. Because before I felt a crutch, Asian but now friends. I feel like no, I feel empowered by yeah by it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I think what frustrated me was I felt like. Uh, did you hear about the Harvard case? Oh yeah, actually, I, I have it in my notes here to talk about. Oh okay, we can talk about it later. We, we if can. You want. Yeah, maybe. Okay, well. Well, after Joseph Pierce, we'll circle back to this topic. Sorry, got off track. So no anyway, oh. we all felt like we were yellow and a Chinaman, just like <laughs> Joseph Pierce. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So, well, I got to say also that yeah. um, of this era of having found information based on this individual that otherwise would have been lost. Yeah. Well, who was his biographer? How did they, oh, where all the data uh, yes. come from? So a lot of this research came from um, a man named Irving Moy. And he calls himself an amateur historian. And he's the one that identified Joseph Pierce's story because of his own Chinese-American heritage and also his own experience in the military, I believe. And yeah, uh, thank you so much, Irving Moy, for uh, uncovering a lot of this information because I don't even think it was like on Wikipedia at all, right. unless I'm mistaken. Um, yeah, so... A lot of this information would have been lost, but I think Moy actually like went through the documents himself. Like I found this on like one of those old GeoCities websites, but it was like really well documented. And he had like pictures of like, um, not like wedding birth certificates and like wedding certificates and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, and he even said that he like took a pilgrimage to Joseph Pierce's, uh, grave site, which is great. Spoiler alert, Joseph Pierce is no longer with us. Oh, but damn. Not because he's not a vampire? <laughs> he's not a he's vampire. He's not an immortal being? Damn. Yeah. Come on, Joseph, step up your game at least. I know. So this this quote-unquote Chinaman, 
enlisted in the war. And we're not sure why, but we can sort of assume he just wanted to prove that he was American, which happens, you know, this isn't far-fetched because we see this in World War II. Right. With Japanese Americans. Right. Um, because despite being shipped off to like internment camps and seen by the entire country as the enemy, a lot of Japanese Americans enlisted in the military to prove their loyalty to the United States. Sometimes you just got to prove a point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I wrote down, history has shown time and time again that the United States has zero chill and we are all in a psycho-abusive relationship with the U.S., myself <laughs> included. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So even so, we're in this abusive relationship with the U.S. and looks like Joseph Pierce is too. There was because, a bit of a toxic codependency situation happening. Yeah. Between America and also its immigrants. Yeah, because we all want to be a part of America, but America's just like, yeah. no, they love us and hate us. But all. also, America needs us. Yeah. And America was once us. I know. What the fuck, America? Come on, just let us live. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so war breaks out, and Joseph Pierce is like, I want to prove my love for America. Um, He's a farmer at the time. He's 21, and he enlists on July 26, 1862. Um, Do you know how old he was? He was 21 years old. Yeah, and he becomes a part of the 14th Regiment Company F of the Connecticut Volunteer Infantry that became part of the 2nd Brigade of the 3rd Division 2nd Army Corps of the Army of the Potomac. So just after a year, he after a year later, he's enlisted on November 1st, 1863. He smashed that bamboo ceiling and was promoted to corporal. <laughs> Is that a phrase that's on there? <laughs> that's what I wrote. So, <laughs> to be clear, I also like put a lot of editorial comments in got my it, notes. Got it, got it, got <laughs> it. Smash the bamboo ceiling. Yes, yeah, so go Joseph Pierce. And I even wrote down, for perspective, <laughs> I, at the age of 21, was drinking fish bowls and taking shots and partying all night and trying to emulate the Jersey Shore and not at all ready to graduate college with my liberal arts degree. Ugh, the Jersey Shore. That was Shore. me. <laughs> yeah, actually, when you called me to tell me to do this, I was just like, is the Jersey Shore still doing okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, Jersey Shore is doing great. Yeah, it's such a good show. I love it. It's doing great. Yeah. There's so much stuff going on with that. Sorry, I can talk about that forever, but we're not going to talk about that. Going back to Joseph Pierce. Who I smashes- know you can talk about that forever. <laughs> so Joseph Pierce, he smashes the bamboo ceiling. He's, you know, a quote unquote Chinaman. And he enlists in the army as a volunteer. And a year later, he's promoted to corporal, which is a pretty high rank. Big, uh, big deal. Yeah. So it's a big deal. So why didn't we know about this guy? Um... And I'm sure he like put up with a lot of racist bullshit, um, but he fought in Antietam, Gettysburg, and he fought all the way up to uh, General Robert E. Lee's surrender. Um, so he fought, he survived that entire war. Yeah, he was in it to win it. Yeah. So what's amazing about this- Do we know if he was hurt? Sorry. Um, Do we know if, was he ever injured in any way? Does I don't- because I feel like if you got a cut back then you're automatically dead (laughs) because I don't think so I think he was just like you know you got a paper cut it was like oh man yes it's just the guy in the triage you're not sure if you're gonna live so I think he was he seemed pretty unscathed because so Robert E. Lee surrenders and he's alive but oh this is what I wrote down 
what was amazing this entire time he's fighting and he's like corporal he's still rocking the chinese braid like he mm. has the whole braid thing like a badass yeah and he's like not trying to americanize himself he's just like yeah i'm chinese yeah, he's not trying yeah and so of the original 1,040 men who listed in his original regiment, he was one of the 215 to survive. Oh, that's amazing. So that's to give it a little bit perspective. Him and his horse braid. Yeah, exactly. So just imagine this like, cor- not cor- colonel, corporal. Corporal. Fighting with that Chinese braid. That's dope. Yeah. Just like whipping in the wind. Yeah. He's on the battlefield. He's like, he has his musket. Or whatever they call them. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. And, like, what's amazing is he fought for the Union. So he, like, obviously was... He was on the right side. He was on the right side. I would love to see a movie about this guy. Like, that would be so badass. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then how long did he live for afterwards? So, yeah, after the war, he went back home to Connecticut, where he met and fell in love with a white woman named Martha Morgan around 1876. Mm -hmm. And, see, this is how far Irving Moy did this research. He wrote down, Joseph and Martha were not married in either of their hometowns, but in Branford by Reverend E.J. Eldridge of Emmy Church, hmm. who perhaps as sympathetic to the couple's plight. So what the I- The plight of being a, a multiracial couple? Yeah. So I think that's what he was trying to imply was just like, because he was a Chinese man and she was a white woman, yeah. they probably could not have gotten married. Sure. But this like- Reverend was like, you know what? I'll marry you guys in He's another like, oh, whatever, hometown. bro. Yeah. So afterwards, he just lives a normal life with Martha. Um, he becomes an engraver in Connecticut and has three children. Amazing. Name Lulu Edna Pierce, Franklin Norris Pierce, and Howard Benjamin Pierce. Howard Benjamin Pierce. Yeah. And he died on January 3rd, 1916 at the age of 73. Damn, long life. Yeah. And he's also survived by descendants today. Um, so these descendants actually reached out to Irving Moy, thanking him for doing all this research because they had no idea that their great great grandfather was this like amazing Chinese American corporal. Because I'm sure, like with a lot of the generations mixing. Yes. Yeah. 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 And also who knows what record keeping was back then. Yeah. So like um I Right later in my notes that uh, Joseph Pierce starts identifying as Japanese instead of Chinese. Oh, is, and what's the reason for that? Um, I'm assuming it's because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And he was just like, oh, I don't want to be a part of. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that whole situation. Yeah, exactly. And so what's the origin of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Can you speak a bit about about that oh i feel like i should know this but i feel like i don't know enough (laughs) history i just know it happened and then it stopped happening when world war ii broke out and then now japanese americans were ostracized gotcha so one's out one's in yeah exactly and i just feel like a lot of it is history repeating itself because right now we're talking about i mean i feel like it used to be Muslims, but now it's Mexicans again, and it's just like a whole cycle of like who to blame for. Yeah, exactly. America's who's the next problem. scapegoat? And yeah. Who's the next political tool? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I get so frustrated with Asian Americans sometimes because I don't know if if you want to talk about Harvard at all, but no, I do want to talk about Harvard. I would yeah. love to talk about Harvard. But what I get frustrated. So about- I applied to Harvard once. They never. <laughs> you didn't get it. They never wrote me back, and I was like, <laughs> God damn it! I knew I shouldn't have. Uh, I know I should have studied for my algebra. (laughs) 
I don't know. Like, I just feel like a lot of Asian Americans majority don't remember that we were also once the scapegoats. Yes. And it's very possible that we can be the scapegoats yes, again. Absolutely. Um, which is why we should always stand in solidarity with whoever is the scapegoat of the day. And I just feel like, you know, a lot of it is looking out for ourselves in our community mm-hmm. instead of taking that risk and yeah. standing in solidarity. So I think that's where a lot of my frustration comes from. Yeah, I know. I, I totally, and I'm sure that like starting your podcast was a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I wanted not only white Americans to see that we've always been a part of this country and we've built this country, but I also want people of color to also see that like, you know, we need to stand together because, you know, it looks like from the past that we have stood together, but something broke us apart in sure. between all of that. Sure, sure. Yeah. For me, it feels like a lot of people, uh, a lot of groups or we're constantly in contention for, for getting that level up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then that, that kind of creates overt tension on top of whatever ruling class there is using that, um, that, that vying for power or that desire to vie for power within the groups using that for political gain to maintain the power. Cause you always think, I remember like, you know, in the Obama years, I'm sure you thought the same way where like, Oh, we're, we're on a rocket ship to outer space. (laughs) We're, we're all just, we're all headed towards that glorious one beige, race yes (laughs) you know that one beige complexion yeah and we're all going to just take it there but then now we're in that space of no i'm this and i'm representing who i am and my lineage goes all the way back to this and and we're finding empowerment on our on our individualism and um our our culturalism yeah Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because I feel like lately I'm getting frustrated with like representing my people. Yeah. Like I feel like that. You feel it's a burden? Yeah. I do feel like it's a burden now. And it's like, it's not fair that all this represent representation becomes placed on this one person. Um, And I think maybe my perspective shifted because of, you know, being in the entertainment industry or like trying to be in the entertainment industry. And like, sometimes I think it's unfair where, you know, an actor is like put on blast because they took on a role that's not very representative of their people. Right. Um, like the only person I can think of right now is Ken, Ken Jeong, uh, for doing the hangover. And obviously I was also pissed off at him. I was also just like, why did you do that? And, but then again, I'm just like, he's a doctor. (laughs) He should know better. Yeah. And then, then again, a part of me is like, I get it. Like you want to pursue this endeavor. You're like placed in a rock and a hard place. And it's not you, it's the writers, it's the directors who made this choice to make a caricature. Sure. If not you, it would have been another. Everyone's kind of complicit. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, I'm I'm just getting frustrated with, like, it's not just the actor or the person in front of the camera. It's also people behind the camera. And I think we need to start holding people behind the camera more accountable yeah. than the people in front. So how do you feel about someone like Aquafina mm-hmm. as opposed to someone like Ken Jeong? Yeah. Where there is the Ken Jeong type where he's playing up a stereotype or he's playing up, you know, some of the, the less flattering... Yeah, uh, less flattering depictions of of Asian people. Yeah, but then Aquafina, who is kind of 
playing herself in a lot of what she does. (laughs) But then there is a lot of, um, you know, rhetoric thrown at her. Yeah. I do have a point of view on her, but I'm curious. That is something that's interesting because that's been brought up a lot on my podcast too of like, you know, was she putting on a black scent, quote unquote, or was she just being herself from Queens? She sounds like a girl from Queens. Yeah. That's, that's my point of view. <laughs> yeah. She sounds like a girl from Queens. She sounds like a lot of friends that I know, regardless yeah. of what their race is. Yeah. And 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 I think that there there's a bit of an, an unfairness about yeah. uh, what she's meant to represent when she's essentially just being very true to who she is. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where... She's from New York. She listens to hip hop. She's... Yeah. And she's she was a rapper. Scene. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I just, I don't think it's fair that we're putting her on blast because that's who she is. Yes. Um, But then, like, there was an episode where we talk about this, actually, this specific thing about Aquafina, where if you ever find yourself feeling defensive, you should always just stop and listen to what the other community is saying. So yes. it is the Black community that is saying that she is, you know, doing this Black scent quote unquote. I don't even know if that's like the right term for it. Um, and like maybe where my, def- my personal defensiveness, it's like coming from a place of ignorance too. So it's just like, it's, I don't know, like I feel very torn about it, sure. but my, like, I still feel like I think she's just being her. And like, I think we view her as putting on whatever is because like, Asian Americans haven't been seen ever. Yeah. Like that side of Asian, Asian America hasn't been seen because when we are seen, we're like these fucking nerds who yeah get into Harvard. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I didn't really like, apply to Harvard. I was, that was yeah. a joke earlier. Yeah. But that's like what frustrates me about the Harvard case too, is just like, really, this is the one thing that the Asian community is going to talk about. Like there's, a slew oh, that's of, such a good point. Oh, like there's a slew that's the, of other. That's where we're problems. putting our stance in. That's yes. where we're investing our our digital ink on. Yeah, exactly. Is, there's is like the all these thing. other problems happening. We're being marginalized. We have the highest growing poverty rate in New York City, but we're gonna talk about. Oh, we can't get into Harvard because all these black and brown people are getting into Harvard in our place. And I'm like, really? That's so interesting. That is so. Well, first it's racist. Second, it's just like come on like yeah we can do better than that like we yeah. can talk about more important issues and why do you want to go to harvard it's like yeah. f- filled with like crazy people <laughs> like crazy people come out of harvard like didn't bill o'reilly go there oh i don't know that i, don't know. I'm, I can't speak on that that's so <laughs> that'd be an interesting tidbit if that is true yeah i don't know i just feel like when i think about harvard it's like these like really rich white dudes who come out to be conservative republicans sure. who don't really stand up for human rights. I think a lot of Asians end up being conservative in later life, or at least a lot yeah. of like Asians from the from home, from home, home. Oh, oh like yeah, from like from the Asia, motherland. from motherland. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I know the um, you know a lot of my relatives have have skewed conservative yeah. over the years. But I'm wondering also if that's just a a a mindset that of being older in this country, and that's like fiscally driven. Or if that's something that's just an ideological thing, like truly ideological. Um, And then, you know, I know that, you know, our nation gets criticized for nationalism. But if that's essentially just, you know, Mm self-protection, the mindset of self-protection, whether it manifests itself in fear, fear rhetoric, or like, you know, closing your borders or whatever, uh, does, does that 
protectionism just filter out into old age? I don't. I'm I, just thinking about old age. I'm thinking about getting older. <laughs> <laughs> My birthday was a couple weeks ago. So. Oh, happy birthday! Oh, thanks. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm at I'm at an age now where my every year is just one year closer to death. Uh, yes, I I mean I don't know. I just I feel like I mean I can only speak for the Asian community. I do feel like the Asian American community has sort of bought into the model minority myth. Yes, and believe that if we try our best to be white, then maybe we will right. be protected somehow. But I don't I don't think that's the case. And yeah. Yeah, I'm just, that's like a huge thing that I, and the Harvard thing just made it more disappointing. I was just like, come on guys. Like, I know we're better than this. Like, I know that we, like we could achieve so much if we could just stand in solidarity with everyone else against white supremacy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, do you ever read Next Shark? Oh my fucking God. I'm, I hate Next Shark. Next shark is it. it just populates my Instagram feed. Well, a let me say I do agree that the the model minority model <laughs> yes. is shit. It's it's a trap. It's a trap. It's yeah. completely a trap. But then uh, next shark, and I don't really uh, look at the site, so I can't really speak to the editorial of next shark. But I will say when their when their headlines do populate my Instagram feed, I'm more just like ugh, like, ugh. I, yeah. I like this is what we're talking about. <laughs> oh my god, next shark is. Um, Although it is dope that there are, uh, because of the midterm elections, that there are um, some really interesting um, uh, Asian politicians that are currently in the Yes. yes. So there's that. There I'm is that. really excited that we have the house, at least. Yeah, exactly. So. And Next Shark does speak to Asian exceptionalism, which I which I like. Which, but that's part of the whole Harvard yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, But then that's like sitting Asians on a certain class and not allowing for um, <laughs> diversity within your own yeah. group yeah next and shark also is like weirdly uh were you ever into harry potter i'm gonna make a harry potter reference no i've never seen a harry potter movie <laughs> or read a harry potter book so i'm exposing myself right now. Uh, okay well for listeners who do know harry potter then next shark is like i've this, heard of harry potter by the way yeah <laughs> i'm aware that there is well there's like the pure being. the pure bloods i feel sure. like next shark is like all about pure bloods you know and anyone who has any interracial relation, they're, they're mudbloods. Yeah. Which are yeah. like the, the worst thing you could call anyone in the wizarding world, which is the <laughs> mudbloods. Sorry, this is my nerd coming out. But Next Shark frequently posts uh, headlines about white men torturing, raping, and killing Asian women. And that is like, I think, a roundabout way of saying oh, this is why Asian women should not be with anyone else besides Asian men. Oh. And it's like you think it's a tactic. I definitely think it's a tactic because that is what a lot of these forums. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Celeste Ng, the author Celeste Ng. She was recently attacked uh, because you know her book is her book is turning into a movie, and like Reese Witherspoon bought it, and so she got more of a platform. Sure. So of course the Asian American community saw her, and there's like this incel community within the Asian American community of like men who don't believe Asian women should be with white dudes. Um, And she's married to a white guy, has kids. And like, she just gets like all these like hate mail about her kids being like, they're going to turn into Elliot Rogers is the person they always say. That's why you shouldn't have mixed race kids because they'll turn into Elliot Rogers. And who's Elliot Rogers? He's the guy who shot up UC Santa Barbara. Got it. And he was mixed race. And that's 
first of Ugh, all, really unfair to horrible. mixed race children and people who are mixed race. And it's just wait, like next shark says that. No, next oh, shark doesn't oh, okay, say okay, that. Okay, but <laughs> okay, we're not making that claim. Yeah, next yeah. shark has never said that. Next shark has never said that. But a lot of these people but on forums take on like a Reddit next shark, forum. Yeah, type of on world. Reddit or on Twitter, they take next shark articles that have like these torture rape things happening, and they make that they as they're talking. It point they're just like this is why Ugh. like for example here are like 15 links to these like torture rape things that have happened to asian women and it's just like disgusting that yeah that's terrible and i wish next shark would say something about it if they really don't believe that if they you know yeah if they would make a stand- statement about it yeah yeah well i you know as a media platform i suppose that they have a point of view mm-hmm. it just I just wish it spoke more to to a point of view that I could relate to. But then again, I'm not always on the site. So Yeah, it's just very militant. And I don't know. It's kind of when I see Next Shark he- headlines on Facebook, I'm just like, I just feel like it's like a crazy person talking. Like it feels like. It's, it's clickbait. Yeah, it's clickbaity. very clickbaity. Yeah. 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 Ugh, I hate Next Shark. I'm like angry <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> Sorry for bringing it up. No, wow. no, no. This is such it's a touchy, touchy topic. <laughs> yeah. But the whole Harvard thing. Yes. Go back to that. For like, I, I feel that the, the that discussion it's it's a bit of a pushback too against the idea that that Asians will be the the largest rising immigrant population in the states. Like they're saying like 2055 or something along those lines. Oh, is that the, I didn't know that statistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh and I, I I hope that I'm I'm clarifying that statistic correctly. Mm-hmm. But it it does feel that there is uh, some sort of built-in stopgap of that. It's like, oh, they're they're kind of getting a lot. So Yeah, I I don't know. I th- I so what I originally saw it out saw it as was the Harvard admissions process does have a lot of problems attached yes. to it. I think originally what Harvard said they said was like, oh, Asians don't have a lot of personality or something like that. Ooh. So that was fucked up. Like yeah. I agree with that. That's fucked up. Don't say that. But what I don't agree with is this lawsuit. Yes. To basically dismantle affirmative action because affirmative action not only helps marginalized groups such as black and brown Americans from disenfranchised areas, disenfranchised, disenfranchised areas, but also it helps Asian Americans too. It does. Yeah. Um, And I just feel like, first of all, this, it's this white dude that's leading the, the lawsuit. It's like this conservative white dude. So like, why are we following him? He's not out for our best interests. He's out for dismantling affirmative action, which would then not benefit anyone except white people. Sure. At the end of the day. Um, And I'm just like, of all the things you're going to stand up for, it's this. That's, it's embarrassing. I think it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I'm wondering, well, I do wonder where it's all going to shake out. But in, in terms of having this idea of, um, of the affirmative action conversation and and lumping it in with the Asian American conversation because those two things are typically never mm-hmm. really brought up or contextualized together. Yeah, that that is in and of itself is fascinating without putting commentary on it. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I've met a lot of Asian Americans who really believe that they didn't get into an Ivy League because of affirmative action. Like they really believe that like a black student took their place. And because of that, a terrible thing to think it's terrible. And they're just like, I would have had like 
a better life if I went to Harvard or Princeton or whatever. And I'm like, dude, you're a hedge fund manager. Like, Calm what are you down. talking like, you're about? fine. Yeah. Like, you're going to be fine. Like, and that's something I feel like we don't really I recognize. I went to Rutgers. I think I'm doing okay. I'm happy <laughs> with my life. You're doing great. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't think we talk about that we also have privilege. Yeah. And like, we need to also be like, yeah, we do have privilege as how well. do you How do you feel? Okay. This is really interesting. I want to dig in here. Yes. How do you feel about the idea of Asian privilege? Because I think it's real. And mm-hmm. I think that um, it also goes into the whole like idea of, of of Asians kind of sticking to their own group and and being very insular, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then having that insularity be a source of privilege. Yeah. And I think because, you know, back back in Asia, there is very much a, a unofficial ranking type of vibe happening over there. Yeah. You know, I think Ali Wong talks about, uh, you know, fancy Asians and jungle yes. Asians. <laughs> I am one of those two. <laughs> Do you know? I'll let the listener determine which one I am. Yes. Yeah. And you're definitely the other yes, one. Yes, <laughs> I'm the other one. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And then America doesn't really understand those those yeah. interpersonal or inter-Asian dynamics. Yeah, because we're so interchangeable in the eyes of America. Yeah, that's and true. And we're not. And oh, we have our own... Interchangeable. That's so yeah. interesting. And... Like, I mean, that's probably why Harvard admissions, like, we have no personality because in their eyes, it's just like, it's all the yeah, same. What does that mean when they say that? What does that mean? I think it, I think it was just like, there wasn't... Was that a flippant comment? Or was, was that something remember, in, a, in a memo? It was like, probably something like how Asian Americans don't have like, I don't even know, like personality wise as in like, not... I think there was like boldness attached to it or oh. like some sort of extracurricular activity that's okay. exciting. I don't even know. I don't know. But that was like the headline of like, we have no personalities. Sure, sure, like, sure. Oh, that's not true. Yeah, that's And I think true. that's why Aquafina gets so much shit because she She's has a huge personality. personality and that's great, but that's who she is. Yes. And it doesn't fit into this narrative of what an Asian American should be. Yeah. Did you hear that one, that, that one, uh, insight and i i I have no idea where it's coming from um or at least i i don't know where the insight originated from but the idea that a larger heavy set asian person feels more american than than a fitter thinner asian person and that person feels more like they're from asia have you heard this i have not heard this yeah yeah but it kind of and this is no hate towards my brother it kind of reminded me of my brother oh god a little bit like i don't i've never met your brother oh huh i I never met your brother okay yeah um but he is like he's always been bigger sure he's never been like a tiny thin asian man i don't know he's always just been bigger and like i don't even mean like he's obese or anything he's just bigger like he's very bulky um very strong and i yeah and i think people did view him a lot as a, I mean, he joined the Marines afterwards. So, oh, did he now? Yeah. So, I was actually that, he's American as hell. Yeah, he's super American, and it's really interesting because I do feel like oh, he's probably gonna listen to this. So, hi. Um, I do feel like what's up, he, Sandy's brother? He's like way more patriotic. Than oh, interesting. Me. Not in a bad way. I even like wrote about him here, but yeah, he joined the Marines right after high school. Um, before September 11th, um, yeah, he was September 11th actually happened during his second month in boot camp because mm. I think in the Marines it's a three month 
boot camp period. Yeah. And then that's when they're like, oh, fuck. War is definitely happening. Yeah. And I feel like he, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're listening to this, but I feel like he went to the Marines because he was just like, well, I don't Correct me if I'm wrong. If you're listening. Yeah. If you're listening to this, text me. Yeah. Call in. Listen, callers. Yeah. We'll, we'll be waiting for your phone. I just feel like he, he joined because he didn't really want to go to college. He was just like, I don't want to do the typical Asian thing to go to college and like study something he didn't want to study. He was just like, I I like paintball. <laughs> he loved paintball. He sure. loved like roughing it. He was like really into like Call of Duty. I don't yeah. even know if the Call of Duty was a thing back then, but he was super into like violent sure. video games. I'm sure he was into uh, like Halo back in the day. Yes. He was super into Halo. I remember we played Halo together and- Was he into Counter-Strike? He was probably, yeah, I think he was into Counter-Strike. He was into like video games. Counter-Strike was like the Fortnite of the late 90s. (laughs) Yeah, he was into that and like cars. Like he was super into like Fast and Furious type things. That's my my precious Fast and Furious, which I love. So, I I mean, he was like super into like racing cars and doing that. So he joined the Marines thinking he was just like, yeah, they said I'll get free college after this, Hmm. but at least I get to like, do this for a little bit um but then 9-11 happened and he's like oh fuck um, like, wow i'm really doing it yeah um so he actually did go to iraq how many um, tours did he do i think just the one correct me if I'm, yeah just the one yeah because i was 12 i was I really say correct me if i'm wrong i was like i don't i don't know <laughs> as if brother's going to actually text you right now yeah i yeah because I was 12. Yeah, because September 11th happened. And then like a year later, we were in Iraq for some reason instead of, you know, just chilling out for a little bit and sure. attacking the right people, quote unquote. Sure, sure. Um, But yeah, he went to Iraq. He was the first platoon. What are they called? The group regiment that went to Baghdad. Um, And it was really scary at the time because I remember at the time... That was like when the war was televised. So the war was always on like TV. Like we always had our TV on. on. Um, It's on C-SPAN. Yeah, it was like constantly on. You see all the nighttime videos Uh, of all the the artillery. And yeah, it was was a lot. Yeah, and it was crazy because we, I remember my parents told all of our close friends not to ring the doorbell because the doorbell would signify that he was dead basically in combat but because the only time they would come tell you they would ring the doorbell and basically be like you know i'm sorry for your loss so on so we were like constantly afraid of the doorbell i was like terrified of the doorbell yeah um and at the time there wasn't like there wasn't everything there is now where you could just like skype people yeah um so it was like we would wait for a snail mail to come um, and he even wrote oh, that's this, like, so true. I still, you can Skype, yeah. yeah no I even FaceTime. remember this letter he wrote and I think it was like, because, uh, the captain or I'm so bad with military terms, but basically whoever was in charge was like, it's time to write that letter to your family of like, if you die, what would you want to say? Um, so I remember that he like wrote this letter to everyone in my family and was just like, you know, if I die, here's everything I wish I told you and things like that. And I was like, so traumatized by this. And I remember I didn't even did he, tell. Did he tell this to you or did he show you this after the fact? No, I got the letter. I got the letter. And he was just like, this is what I want to say if I'm dead. How old were I'm, you at the time? 
I was 12. I was so uh, emotional, obviously. I remember that we were interviewed by the Taiwanese news station and I was just like sobbing (laughs) on live TV and just like crying nonstop because uh, the reporter asked me in Chinese, he was just like, "Um, have you, do your teachers or do your classmates know that your brother is actually serving in Iraq right now? And I said, no, I'm probably going to get emotional now. So I'm sorry if I start crying. Um, and I said, no, I, they don't know. And he was like, why, why don't, why didn't you tell them? And I was like, because if I say it, then it's real and he may not come back. And that would be too much for me. And I was just like weeping on TV so much so that when I went to Taiwan, people recognized me as that girl who was weeping on live television about her brother. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, how, how long later did you go to Taiwan? And you're a kid. Yeah, I, I was a kid. Um, I think I just went that summer because I used to go every summer to like visit my grandparents. You're the crying girl. I was the crying girl. And they were like, oh my God, I recognize you as the girl who cried because of her brothers in Iraq. Um, you were like a meme. Yeah, I was like a meme. Thankfully, memes weren't a thing back then because it was like straight up ugly crying. And, oh, wow, damn. Um, yeah, that would have been all over Instagram that would have yeah. the algorithm would have caught that real fast <laughs> yeah exactly and I remember I wrote this letter to my brother then I was like telling him we were super into that movie an American tale that cartoon Fievel yeah Fievel and you know uh, the-, <laughs> the worst scene of that movie by the way okay tell me the most emotional mostly heart-wrenching scene as a kid mm-hmm. was you know obviously the separation from one's parents yes and you know and being scared and on your own obviously that's like a childish childhood fear you know on some level not being with your your folks and then the one scene where he's walking with his new friends uh or whatever his his buddies Mm -hmm. in america and then he doesn't even realize that he's in the same area as his family and then they're walking above him and he's like below them i remember seeing that i was like no just say hi to each other you fucking idiots it's kind of actually kind of making me a little emotional right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so heart-wrenching. That leads me to the most emotional thing. Uh, I wrote, because I wrote him a letter every single day. That was like my thing. I would like write him letters and just be like, this is what's happening in middle school. And like, mm-hmm. I'm getting straight A's because I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> crazy smart, apparently. Yeah, I was just like, I'm getting straight A's. Um, yeah. And I wrote him... And he like mentioned this because later the Taiwanese news came again to interview us when he came back. So Oh, that's good. Oh, so they closed the loop. Yeah, so they closed that loop. But I was and like, everyone I in Taiwan don't even be. realize everyone in Taiwan's like, oh, thank God that little girl's okay. Yeah, yeah. Cause I was just like, I refuse to be interviewed ever again. Cause they're like, Do you wanna like say something now that your brother's back? I was like, No, I'm gonna cry. No, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so he came back and like he and I didn't even know that he remembered this, but it like touched me so much because I wrote him this letter I was just like you know if you ever feel oh I'm gonna get really emotional if you ever feel scared or sorry if you ever feel scared just remember that Fievel song that we're under the same moon and I was like oh my god and he, oh man he said that letter. You're, you're really making me <laughs> feel some type of way right now no, it's. He was just like that letter got me through so much, and I was just like, I didn't even think anything of it because I was just writing shit yeah. as a kid. Um, Ugh. Yeah. Whoa, I. Did Sandy, not you're you're really. 
No, this is this is really beautiful, actually. Yeah. You want a tissue? Yes. Okay. <laughs> let me let me. Find and then one. I'm ugly crying again. <laughs> no, you're not. It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. The pausing. I'll pause. Are we back? Yeah, we're back. We're back. Okay, we're back. Yeah. I, I don't want. I don't want to step away too long from the experience. Um. Yeah, and then he said that that letter got him through so many hard nights because, like, basically, he talked about how. Um, every night when you sleep, you have to dig a trench to sleep in it. And he talked about how it felt like digging your own grave um, because you can't sleep above ground because then like missiles or whatever, bullets would hit you. So you sleep kind of like six feet under, not buried, but he said like every night it felt like he was digging his own grave. Oh my God. Um, So that letter of me saying like, you know, we're under the same night sky and everything. Um, Just think of me. He was just like, yeah, that letter got me through like so much of just like laying in your own grave, that feeling. And I was like so touched by that. And I was still like 12 or 13 at the time. Absolutely. He was like saying this to these journalists and reporters who were closing the story loop. Um, Yeah. And I don't know where I was going with that, but. Well, I I think we were talking about, how did we start there? No, we started um, on the idea, oddly enough, of. (laughs) the the perception that a a bigger Asian like a heftier Asian person is perceived as a more American yeah and I think they're like like a, I think in their minds like chubby Asian gamer there we go yeah, and then we and then now we're now we we're have here a in a much military. more beautiful space <laughs> yeah and I and I think that's why to tie it all together that's why I was so drawn to Joseph Pierce and all these Chinese American right. soldiers was because I was just like yeah, we've been fighting these like nonsense wars for forever now. And still, we're still seen as the other and the outsider. And, you know, someone like my brother even joined the Marines um, and is perceived as more American because he is bigger. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And like, I do think he is much more, I don't know if patriotic is the word, but just like, for example, we talked once about oh god what is his name that guy who deserted in the war and he got caught by like the taliban like the next day Hmm. um it'll come to me but basically this guy he deserted he was caught by the taliban and he was like tortured for five years straight and then um there was an exchange and he's back in america now um and there is this argument was, of like, well, he wasn't the dude from the season two of Serial, was he? It was a season, yeah. That, okay, that guy. And there's this whole argument of like, I, well, I, I he, didn't even finish that season. How I did didn't I, finish this yeah, season. First either. season's so good. Second season, mm, I wish I was more interested. Yeah, I wasn't that into it. But I remember asking my brother this, and I was just like, "How do you feel about like, should he go to prison for life, or should, like, what should happen to him?" Because I remember because Trump made this whole rhetoric of like, oh, he should be shot on sight because he deserted and like, well, don't do that. But I was just thinking like, you know, should he even deserve to go to prison after being tortured and all this stuff for five years straight? Does he even deserve that anymore? Right. Or is was that quote unquote a price? Yeah. He's already paid a price. Yeah, exactly. And my brother was just like, yeah, of course he needs to go to prison. Like you don't abandon your your brothers, so to speak. Um, oh, and I that's, would that's never the worst, the worst crime. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I just like, and I can't even imagine. I can't imagine going to war, um, and I can't imagine what my brother went through. 
because I think about it, he was only like 19 when he was in Iraq and that's intense. And I was in college. Is your brother still in the military? No, he's not in the military. He left as a staff sergeant. Um, But he still like hangs out with his military friends. I recently started reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's about trauma and PTSD. And, you know, I think that's why I'm so emotional is because I've been thinking a lot about like what PTSD and trauma does to a person. Um, Because in this book, basically this uh, psychologist, he talks about how even when you're done with war as a veteran, like the only time you ever feel alive is when you're in like a war-like simulation. And he plays a lot of Call of Duty with his friends. Okay. And I just like sometimes think about that. I was just like, is it because this is the only time you feel alive? Or do you, like, because your body still remembers what that trauma feels like, that adrenaline of like life mm-hmm. or death. So I think I've just been thinking a lot about that. And like, if, you know, what it, what would it take to heal from that sort of PTSD? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, I think he definitely suffers from it. Right. I mean, anyone would because. Would he contextualize it as suffering or for him? Is it more of a, this is, there's a comfort. Yeah. I don't know. The wrong word? Yeah. I don't know. And I think that's something that I would want to ask him one day because when I read that about how like there's this camaraderie with people who have are veterans and like when they talk about violence and like war that is really exciting to them actually even though it hurt them so much um yeah because what was I where was I going oh because there is this therapy called EMDR and it basically unfreezes your because basically when you have PTSD or you have trauma your body's still moves through life as if you're still in that state of trauma. So EMDR basically unfreezes your brain to that trauma so that you can move on. And what does that treatment entail? EMDR? It's something to do with eye eye movement. I think it's like you, it's almost like being hypnotized, but not really, but basically they do something with your eyes. So your eyes are always moving back and forth as you're recounting the trauma and it can get really intense. Um, Mm. So I don't know, but there are like, I'm I'm like, like I'm doing, (laughs) moving my eyes back and forth, like trying to understand like how that would even physically. Yeah. But I think with this book, the body keeps the score and like this new wave of like, cause I think some celebrities now are talking about EMDR. So it's just like, it's becoming on the forefront of my, my brain of like, what is this? What is. And and it helps people move past trauma. Yeah. Trauma. And I think, yeah, I haven't really thought about my brother being traumatized until recently until reading that book yeah and now it's veterans day and then i talked about this yeah Yeah. we just opened all of it up we just opened all of it up yeah it's like a therapy session yeah totally well isn't podcasting like therapy essentially it is it is like it because you're so present with another person and like we're not very present in our daily lives yeah that's true and you're very very conscious of the words that you're saying the words that they're saying and you're trying to engage with a flow yeah yeah how's acting (laughs) How's your acting going? <laughs> um, I'm getting I'm getting my headshots in December. Booked a headshot photographer. Um, she's great. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, I think she's great. Um, and then I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna start auditioning after I get my wow. headshots. Yeah, scary. 
It is scary. But fun scary. Yeah, I think it's fun scary. I think I, I'm just like, you know, I'm always going to be a writer and a storyteller. And I think this, I don't want to put my entire identity on just acting because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, I'm always going to be creating. Yes. And if acting doesn't quote unquote work out, it will still be there. You know, it's not like something you have to achieve after you're a certain age. And I think like things like Instagram and social media make it seem like you have to be like 18 mm-hmm. forever. And I think Hollywood has that perception too. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's troubling the, the amount of, uh, you know, uh, hyperbaric chamber, like youth that, that, that people expect upon, upon their talent. Yeah. And it's okay to age. I think it's exciting I mean, yeah. for me. <laughs> me too. Yeah. I'm stoked to be in my late thirties. Yeah. I think it's exciting because then you're just like, I don't know. Everyone is like in a rush to get something and I don't feel that rush anymore. I think in my earlier twenties I did. And now I'm just like, you know, if it happens, it'll happen. Like I'm going to keep working towards it. But if it doesn't happen, like I'm not going to die. It's gonna yeah. Be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know where all that pressure, I think it comes from social media, but I don't know. Mm, oh, well, I'm pretty sure. Well, social media probably just enhanced the pressure. Social yeah. media just gave everyone an app to look at. Yeah. That basically like, you know, uh, puts it all in a neat little box. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it was always just in the ether, I think. Yeah. And I think um, I, like I took a social media hiatus and that was really helpful to be like, you know, everything's, I didn't miss anything. Yeah. And I felt like I was really addicted to Instagram at one point being like, oh my God, like, what did I miss? Like, what are people doing? All this FOMO. And now I'm like, I don't really care. And yeah, then, well, that's good. That's good yeah. to not care. Yeah. That's a healthy thing. It is. I feel. Yeah. And like when people like actually stop everything just to put things on their story, I'm just like, that's almost a little sad. <laughs> just like, just be in the moment. Just yeah, be present. Yeah, just be in the moment. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, that's why podcasting does feel like therapy because no one is ever in the moment anymore. I, I agree. I remember when I, when I first started this, I'd be curious to know what you think. When I first started this, just the... It was such a refreshing mindset to place myself in mm-hmm. because you knew that you had dedicated at least an hour plus yeah. to to finding and discovering new things about someone that you were already kind of familiar with. Yeah. And you just wanted to know more. Yeah. From people that, you know, that I barely knew to people that were like I had known for years and years. Yeah. It yeah. was a new experience. Yeah, because we've known each other for years but in like a parting context yeah and exactly I've like yeah actually cried i don't cry in front of a lot of people <laughs> unless it's like very Fair. yeah i haven't cried in front of like a lot of my closest friends and oh, it's just wow. like yeah yeah well that, that was a beautiful thing that we just shared actually yeah i think so it brought us closer together totally yeah, <laughs> yeah. in the moment super present yeah Talking about Fievel. Uh, I need to like rewatch that and cry again. Oh, could we? Oh, man. Could we just never? <laughs> or, I mean, I don't mean like that. I mean, yeah. uh, the idea of Fievel and the idea of, um, I was thinking about your podcast. Did I tell you the story about how I was at SVA and then I was also yes, emotionally yes, raw? Yes, yes. And then I was watching the end of Ninja Turtles, the movie, <laughs> where they're just cheering victoriously on a rooftop after having just killed the shredder. Yeah. And then I'm in my <laughs> dorm just bawling for some reason and then yeah. thinking like, what What was that that just happened to me right now? But it's, Because, you know, art school just makes you a raw nerve. Art school know? makes you go like, 
all these immer- emotions just like purge out of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like inside out constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, recently I watched haunting the haunting of Hill house. Okay. I like sobbed through that as really? well. Um, are you ever going to watch it? It's, so- I'm not really a, a horror type person. I, hate I do want to see the new Halloween, but I haven't. I mean, I engaged. hate horror. It was scary. I screamed a lot through it. It was really fucking scary, but there was just this one moment where, um, cause it's about, I think the true horror is that it's about grief and like what grieving does to a family and a person. And that's what the haunting really is. I mean, there are ghosts and shit that pop out of nowhere. Sure, sure. Um, but that was the true horror. And it, like, I just like cried throughout the entire oh, thing. Oh, because of the, the subtext. Yeah, it was, but there was this one moment where, spoiler alert, the mom dies, but that was the very oh, first no. episode. You find that out in the very first episode. Oh, okay. That's like what they're grieving. But there's a flashback of like all the kids running up the stairs in this big mansion trying to claim their rooms. And then she's like looking up and um, she says, you guys go on without me. And the dad turns back and says, how could we? And that was just like, oh, that's so heart wrenching. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was like the true horror of like they couldn't move on without her. Damn. Yeah. Oh, maybe I have to. Maybe I have to watch it now. Now I'm scared to watch it because it's gonna just turn me to a raw nerve. <laughs> it's really scary, but it's really beautiful storytelling and oh, great wow. like cinematography and everything. If you're into that, huh? Yeah. I, I am into that. Yeah, I am how, into those things. Well, how is work going with you? Am I allowed to ask? Oh yeah, you're yeah. definitely allowed to ask. Oh, everything's great. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm taking a, a week off, which is nice. Oh yeah. So, but I am going to London this week to talk at the um, Global Innovation Forum oh, conference cool. to talk about. Um, uh, inclusion within design mm-hmm. and I'm giving a talk called The Toxic Grid how diversity I'm probably getting my own subtitle wrong but uh, <laughs> like uh, The Toxic Grid how diversity in design is important for our culture in the future and interesting yeah and I gave a a, a, a similar talk uh, last year at Creative Summit here in New York and uh, this talk I'm, I'm kind of tweaking it a bit where i'm taking the idea of the grid which is a design concept or typically a design concept but also like you know kind of a digital thought too uh where uh, the grid it, it symbolizes balance structure um and you know to a lot of people uh, eurocentric vision of design or it is mm-hmm. a eurocentric vision of design yeah um because it is feels very swiss you know or and Danish. yeah exactly <laughs> and for me um, the idea of multiculturalism and like you know all, um, and aesthetics that aren't driven by the typical vision of balance and structure mm-hmm. they're very interesting to me yeah um, so so I'm, I'm trying to use the talk or trying to use that platform to say like here's what you typically think the grid is so I'm just trying to form my thoughts because I I have the keynote presentation but I haven't <laughs> talked through it yet uh, here's what you think the grid is um, here's what the grid could be and then I break in the talk uh i talk about the tower of babel and the tower of babel this bible story about um about building structures and how we build structures like you know um uh, they are destroyed by other powers right mm-hmm. so man likes structure um which is kind of the grid and yeah. then i go into another person uh, another personal story about how um when i was young the uh as as an asian person growing up the only uh i'd never seen an uh, an empowered asian person on screen mm-hmm. in some way until i'd seen rufio and hook yeah and just so happened that rufio is filipino um uh dante bosco so so i use that to say like there are 
the vision of myself that I had was a, was was a Eurocentric vision until I'd seen yeah uh, an empowered version of what I could be yeah you know yeah I'm not phrasing it right but yeah like someone that's empowered that's like me on screen yeah and then then I take that into a space of you know like the the grid could be uh, could be a place for inclusion if you allow the grid to be a tool to to let it to stretch and skew and and you can change the content in here yeah it's a different type of structure yeah that's really cool like i've been hearing a lot about like representation in design and like ethics in design and i never really understood what that meant so it's like really cool to hear your perspective of that because yeah the only other thing i've read about it was like someone shared this article about like how the ethics of they made the example of like uh those soap dispensers and in my mind i thought you just they yeah put your hand under there yeah and that happens but apparently if a black hand goes under a soap dispenser sometimes it doesn't dispense oh and like that's also like something something to think about as a designer which i would never think about because i'm just like i thought there was like some motion not color sense you know yeah yeah um so it's like really cool that you're in that space oh totally it's it's a new it's it's a new frontier, I think, and mm-hmm. and uh, I just recently judged the Society of Illustrators, where uh, and I've never judged that particular award, but I have judged other awards. This year, I judged for Society of Illustrators, Art Directors Club, and also Ad Color Awards. And Ad Color Awards are specifically about multiculturalism in the creative lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I judged the Art Directors Club, which I judged before, yeah. Like when I judged the first time, it no one really talked about inclusion. Yeah, and this was back in it was fairly recent, uh, twenty twelve, maybe twenty twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Yeah, maybe, I'm probably you know blanking on the year. Uh, and then w- this year there was way more talk about inclusion design. Also, yeah. we were in the Dominican Republic and uh, judging uh, judging a lot of posters from Asia. Interestingly enough, so we were there was an open conversation about how do we judge. Uh, and and my my sensibilities are typically Western. Yeah. So how do we judge uh, uh, Asian design based on their own parameters of success? Yeah. You yeah. Know? So you know, in Asia, this might be a very successful piece of communication, but I I just want to make sure that I'm not missing a beat. And yeah. The tea and yeah. the and the the group that we were with made sure we wanted to make sure we were missing a beat. Yeah. And we were fairly multicultural within a group. And then I judge ad color and that's all about inclusion, right? Yeah. Then at the illustrators thing uh, a couple weeks ago, the, we were heavily in that inclusion conversation and and uh, I just can't imagine those conversations happening even up to like three or four years ago. Yeah. Because you know? I feel like it was three or four years ago where Scandinavian design became super popular at least in mainstream media. Oh, sure. Where like a lot of things are just like, oh, like Scandinavian interior design is where it's at and minimalism and things like that. Um, And I feel like now there's a shift to Japanese design. Correct me if I'm wrong. I have no idea. Oh, well, no. I'm I'm a student of of whatever I'm being receptive to. Well, now there's like this whole thing about like imperfectionism and how that wabi-sabi is now very 
big in the design world. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> what is wabi-sabi? It's like this idea of beauty and imperfection. It's a Japanese idea. And like how, you know, like... Like a bonsai things, tree? Not a bonsai and tree. And how a bonsai tree can get all funky? Like, you know how sometimes they, they have like gold lining and cracked ceramics? Like if a ceramic piece became cracked they would like put gold in it to sure. like sort of highlight the imperfection oh, okay yes yes um and something that's been like used a lot like a kettle that's been used a lot there's like rust or something yeah. there's like beauty and like something being used yes, and like yes. that imperfection and how not everything is just like straight and narrow and everything yeah. um i, mean, it, I think I've it indicates heard. i think it's warmer yeah I, uh warmer by nature the idea of imperfection but also um it's like it's actually a more beautiful thought to see that something is being receptive by to humans. Yeah. You know, I think, I think something about minimalism that, that is a bit of a put off for me is the idea that it's pristine mm-hmm. and that it's, it's almost anti-human. Yeah. It's like, you know, it just cold. makes you feel cold. Yeah. Yeah. It makes yeah. you feel cold. And, and I, I push against a lot of those, that sentiment, um, I'm, I'm not about perfection necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I know in my day-to-day work, um, at the office, I, 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 I am always trying to push into an expressive space and even my own personal work, I push things into an expressive space. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a new frontier. It's a new frontier. And you know, there are only a few voices I think that are pushing that world. Yeah. How do you um, make yourself be more representative? Because you were saying you have a more Western lens when it comes to illustration and design. So how do you push yourself to be exposed to different cultures of design? Is it like museums or any exhibitions or what? What does one do if they were like a student of design? Oh, oh, that's a good question. I I think it's about actively seeking things out and always being receptive and, uh, not necessarily like looking for trend, but but um, having having the understanding that things always originate from somewhere, mm-hmm. and and knowing that uh, that if something isn't even uh, it doesn't relate to your lens at the time, that there is probably uh, an origin of you know of um there's probably a language being spoke that you might not be privy to yet yeah um like i recently joined the the aiga mm-hmm. um and uh it's it's one of those uh it's it's the, uh, an organization driven towards uh design yeah and the des- and design um uh the design discourse yeah. right um it's kind of like it's, it's like the art directors club or the one club society of illustrators like all those things um it's just that so um so with aiga there is this uh i mean on the advocacy and inclusion committee for their uh, board of directors um and and we're we're for me seeing like being in that conversation is very fascinating to me because seeing events that are being put on like there was a there was a very recent event that they put on about uh nameplates like you know you like you, you go to you know mm-hmm. you're, you're in the bronx or in brooklyn or whatever you just see a gold nameplate yeah. someone's name and a lot of a lot of people think of that as like that's disposable design and it's probably like for lack of a better term low class mm-hmm. right but i'm looking at that and i think the event of this 
this event was driven towards and this happened before my time but i was very fascinated by it it was, uh it it doesn't give you uh like the the dumbed down version of the nameplate of like what that means it's more of like this is this these are all dope nameplates mm-hmm. um here is it gives you insight into the artistry of them yeah and it and it doesn't um it doesn't start you at step one it actually starts you at like step three or four within the process so you know it's just you know it's like a, an elevated showcase of, of what the best version of this is yeah you know yeah um so that's kind of a personal philosophy of me of like how it was show me what the best version of that thing is yeah let's talk about it yeah and um you know like the detective part of me will want to deconstruct and kind of understand the nature yeah. of it yeah and i don't think a lot of people think about design in that way just like how i was telling you i didn't think about ethics in design yeah either so there's a lot that goes into design it's really cool yeah totally well the design industry is it's a fascinating place it's a space that i exist in for sure for uh some time now but even from uh from going back to the whole education thing mm-hmm. um it it's not that easy to uh to break into the design industry in new york you know yeah there only there's a small number of schools that are considered like in the upper echelon and yeah. then to break to become to enter the creative community Oh, after coming out of one of those quote unquote favorite schools, uh, that's its own thing. Yeah. But then, you know, there are a lot of state schools like uh, community colleges that offer programs within design um, that may not necessarily have all the resources of one of the preferred schools. But then what? But then those also serve communities that are underserved. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because of because of financial reasons, because of geographic reasons, you know, maybe a kid um, in um, in Newark, New Jersey, can only go to a certain school, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> and but maybe he or she has talent, and uh, you know what what chance do they have to break into the to the community? So you know, yeah. that that's for that's another thing about AIGO and ethics yeah about the serving underserved communities yeah i really like that perspective too because i think a lot of people put so much weight into these name brand schools and i think i'm like harvard like harvard and i'm coming from this idea of like well do you really want to go into so much debt now just to go into i mean if you can afford it yeah good for you but like you're saying what about the kid from newark or just an average person like to be in that so much debt and debt is like such a huge topic now, especially student debt Um, to, you know, learn design or to learn, I don't know what a liberal arts degree. And it's just like, sometimes I don't think that debt is worth it. And I think there shouldn't be shame attached to community colleges or to not name brand schools, which there is. And I think that is very classist and elitist. Yeah. So what are you doing next? I know you're doing a podcast. Yes. A women's podcast. For- oh, yes. I'm going to work it. Got it. Festival. Okay. Like, it oh, thank is- you. Thank you for saving me. I was just like, <laughs> how do I explain? Um, yeah, I'm going on Tuesday and Wednesday because this episode is going to come out. So yes, right. I'm going to go to work it. It's a two day podcast festival conference um, for women and non-binary uh, people. Is that how, how they identify sorry um 
but yeah, it's, I got this scholarship for it a year ago. Cause I was like, I'm not going to pay money for this. I don't have money to go to this conference. Cause I was still in school. Right. Um, and I, and, and you apply for a scholarship to the conference. Yeah. I was like for women of color who are podcasters. That's very cool to the scholarship. And I was like, and had I'm you launched student. the podcast at that point? No, I hadn't. I just had the idea and I was just like, this is oh. my idea. So when I got it, I was like, okay, I really have to do this podcast. And my, that's a great yeah. motivation. <laughs> To get yeah. off your ass. Yeah. So it's like really cool because they like connect you with producers. Um, I think it's sponsored by WNYC um, and they connect you with like all these people. There's like a lot of talks about podcasting and like how to get into the industry. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. So I'm doing that this week. That's very cool. Um, I'm also working on a pilot right now. Um, it's, I don't know what. It's untitled. I don't really love the working title right now. The working title is Imposters, but uh, it's a mockumentary style. I don't know if it's going to be a web series, but we just want to shoot the pilot. And that is slated for spring of next year to start shooting. Um, I'm working on like budgeting and all this like producer stuff, like right. getting a team together, um, figuring out location, figuring out crew and things like that. And yeah, hopefully shooting a pilot and pitching it to networks. I That's have to awesome. like work on my pitch skills and pitch deck. And oh, everything. sure. Ooh, that next pitch year. deck. <laughs> next year. Yeah, pitch that deck. pitch deck's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about it because obviously I'm really into representative, uh, casts. So it is going to be a very representative cast. It is going to be a comedy, um yeah that's basically it for me yeah and where can our when can where can my listeners (laughs) find you oh you can find me on instagram i am at sandy pants s-a-n-d-i-e pants with two s's at the end and you can also find my podcasts at now in color podcast also on instagram and we're everywhere itunes spotify etc cool yeah, I'm also on Twitter, but you don't want to follow me on Twitter. I don't do anything there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really do anything on Twitter anymore either. Yeah. Uh, oh, what about you for my listeners? Um, so uh, this week I'm doing that global innovation forum. Mm-hmm. So that's happening. I will, that's a thing. Um, I don't know if they're recording that talk. Um, hopefully they are. But if not, uh, you can listen to this podcast, <laughs> First Generation <laughs> Burden. Uh, we also have a website with all the episodes and archive uh, firstgen dot oh firstgenburden.com. And uh, it has all the all the links there, so it's just a nice little handy dandy. Also, we are on iTunes and uh, First Generation Burden, full name on iTunes. And you can find me, uh, Rich T, uh, on Instagram, Rich, R-I-C-H underscore T-U. And I'm on Twitter as well, but I rarely use it. Um, otherwise, if you just want to check out some uh, cool art, design, all that, uh, you can go to my website at rich2.com. Cool. So, yeah. So yeah. otherwise, I'm just, you know, living life. I'm out here. Yeah. Same. Just doing my thing <laughs> working on my pilot working on my podcast there you go trying not to burn out <laughs> same yeah same well first of all lastly sandy thank you so much for coming and you know doing this doing this co podcast it was really fun yeah thank you so much this was like a really really fun collaboration we should do it again in a few months have another history podcast slash, <laughs> exactly uh first generation burden podcast yes yeah. 
Perfect. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Bye. So that was our special edition episode of First Generation Burden and the Now in Color podcast uh, hosted by myself, Rich Tu, and Sandy Chang. Sandy's really awesome, and uh, you guys should definitely check out her podcast on iTunes, Stitcher. And for this podcast, as always, we're on iTunes. Also, the website, firstgenburden.com, with the archive of all the episodes. If you want to follow me on social media, it's just rich underscore tu. And I uh, want to thank Des Jin, our sponsor, Ben Sounds on Music. I also want to say happy Veterans Day and hope this episode was uh, informative and educational on top of uh, fun and interesting. So thanks for listening. This has been First Generation Burden and Now in Color podcast.